Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that tells us about Jesus. And we pray in your mercy uh, that we would know the work of your word in our lives. It would help us to trust Jesus for eternal life and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, uh, we would be equipped to live the life of his followers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're the supporter of a footy team, you wear the scarf. If you're passionate about climate change, you're on your bike or in your hybrid. You're in love, well, you're showing the ring and talking about your beloved and, so I'm told, changing your status on Facebook. Conviction, whether it's about what's the best team in the competition or what's the world's most pressing problem or about who the most beautiful person in the world is, conviction shows, and we expect it to show, don't we? If there was no appropriate expression, others would doubt our conviction. And without expression, if we ever reflected on the conviction we professed, we would begin to doubt it for ourselves. So how does conviction about Jesus show? How does conviction of the truth of what God has revealed about Jesus in Hebrew show? That is, a conviction about the greatness of Jesus as the ruling Son, the Lord to whom all things will be subjected. Conviction about the effectiveness of Jesus, the crucified Jesus, to deal with our sin problem, to bring us by his death into an eternal relationship of peace with the Almighty and just God. Conviction about the uniqueness of Jesus as the one who took on our flesh to become our high priest who, having died, having defeated our foe, now lives forever to intercede for his people. How does conviction about the greatness and effectiveness of Jesus as the only saviour show? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us how it should show in what you heard read, verses 19 to 39 of chapter 10. And that is one unit, beginning and ending, with a reference to the boldness, the confidence we have in Jesus. And in these verses, our author tells us the conviction about the truth of what he said about Jesus will show in the lives of those who believe in Jesus in three ways. Firstly, in verses 19 to 25, it'll show in a distinctive life of faith, hope and love. Secondly, verses 26 to 31, a conviction about the truth of Jesus will show in heeding the warning not to fall away because the believer knows <coughs> that there's nowhere else to turn. And then thirdly, in verses 32 to 39, conviction about the truth of Jesus will show in persevering in the faith, keeping on <coughs> as you've begun until the end. And today we're going to just look at the first of those the distinctive life of those who believe in Jesus <coughs> have conviction about his unique effectiveness and greatness. And we'll return to the other two sections next week. Well, our author launches into this section with a summary of the benefits believers experience because of what Jesus has done once for all on the cross, a work he's discussed at length in chapters 7 to 10. Therefore, he writes, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place 
by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. He he focuses on two, in a sense, blessings every believer has because of what Jesus has done. He says, firstly, believers have confidence. And the word translated confidence can have both a subjective sense, that is, our confidence, something happening in us, but also an objective sense, a reality outside ourselves, the sense of authorisation or permission. It's actually this objective sense that the author is highlighting. Thanks, Kingsley. Believers in Jesus, he says, have authorisation, permission, because of Jesus' death on the cross, the the blood of his sacrifice, they have authorisation to enter into the holies, the most holy place. And because of that authorisation, they come confidently. We have been given permission to come safely into the very presence of the living, almighty, holy God. And this present authority is a forever authority. It's an always right because it is the result of Jesus' death once and for all. He describes our coming into God's presence as coming, verse 20, by the new and living way through the curtain. And so he's still picturing the believer's privilege by referring to the architecture of the Old Testament tabernacle, which he outlined in chapter 9. And remember, there were two sections to that tabernacle, two rooms. There was the outer room into which the priests went continually, and then the inner room, the Holy of Holies, separated from the outer room by a curtain and into which the high priest went only once a year. But here he's saying that Jesus has opened the way into the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God. He's actually repeating the point he's made in verse 19, but he's repeating it to emphasise a few things. Firstly, that this way is new. Never before in history. It's only come into being with Jesus' death. And to emphasise that this way is living. That is, it won't die, it won't cease to be, it will continue while Jesus continues. We will always be able to come into the presence of God And also to emphasise that we have this authority not because of anything we have done or will do, but through Jesus' death on the cross. He says it is through his flesh. He's not identifying there the curtain with Jesus' body because in chapter 6 he's already said that Jesus has gone behind the curtain. No, he's identifying Jesus' flesh with the way we come to God the new and living way that is through his flesh. It's again a reference to the death of Jesus, the death of his body, his death on the cross. He says this is what gives us now this wonderful permission, this right to come with confidence into the presence of God. And our second privilege as believers is that he says we now have a great priest over the household of God. And he's told us about this priest up to this point. He's one who's merciful and faithful, one who can sympathise with our weaknesses, one who is always ready and able to help, one who, because he lives always constantly, intercedes for his people. He says, if you're a believer, you have your Lord Jesus always living in the presence of God on your behalf. 
Believers always enjoy these two benefits from the work of Christ. They enjoy them from the day, the moment they believe. And because of that, he says, there are three things that should characterise the life of every believer that should always be, that, that, that every one of us who trusts in Jesus should always be giving ourselves to if we are convinced of the truth of Jesus. And the first of these, he says, is that we can draw near to God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near because, he says, we have a genuine relationship with God. We come with a true heart. That is, a heart that listens to what God says and believes it, the new heart that is the fruit of Christ's work of the new covenant. You may or may not remember that back in chapter 3, he described that wilderness generation that had failed to enter God's rest as having an unbelieving heart because they had hardened themselves to God's word. But those who trust Jesus have a true heart. They believe God's promises. And so they come to God in a full assurance of faith. That is, they have the confidence that comes from the certain effectiveness of Christ's work. They have the confidence that comes from the stability of knowing in the gospel that the true and living God is for them and that he has opened the way for them into his presence by the death of his beloved son. And so they come because they've been made fit for God's presence, purified heart and body by Jesus' work. But what is it to draw near to God? Well, that includes all that's involved in a believing response to the gospel, repenting, calling out to God to be made one of his people. But in our day-to-day experience, drawing near to God is especially shown in prayer, coming consciously to the almighty God for help and grace. That's actually the aspect of drawing near to God that Hebrews has already highlighted in chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So genuine conviction about Jesus' work will show itself in faithful, confident prayer a continuing practice of prayer. Now think how distinctive that is, how different that is from your unbelieving neighbours. Take those with no belief in God. They live in a closed world where there's no help to be found outside themselves and they mock prayer as talking to an imaginary friend or or maybe some of them a bit are divine but that's a God who's distant, indifferent, uninvolved. But believers keep on drawing near to the living God confidently. Believing the gospel, they know that God is involved in the world. He does things in the real world, like sending his son or raising him from the dead in the real world. And they know he cares. And so believers pray, not as a last resort, a kind of celestial roll of the dice. We pray first, we pray confidently because we can draw near. We always know we will get a hearing from the Almighty God who rules all things, who has no limitation on his resources to help and who cares.
we know we are never without help. And think about how this full assurance of faith is seen in the New Testament's teaching on prayer. How different the prayers of those who know and rely on Jesus' work are from the practice of those who worship Paul's gods. Those who know Jesus has given them authority to come to God, that is, that he is always interceding for them, can pray as Jesus commanded. Remember how he commanded? Oh, go into your room, shut the door. Don't heap up empty phrases. Believers can pray in secret because they're not praying to impress others or gain advantage by a reputation for piety. They are praying because God hears. And that's why they pray. So it doesn't matter if nobody knows they're praying. God hears. Oh, they don't need to heap up these impressive phrases or work themselves into a lather of devotion or shout to show the intensity of their worship as if God was deaf. They know they don't need to get God's attention with gifts and offerings. And so they can pray with a kind of reverent simplicity, our Lord teaches, our Father. And they pray directly about their concerns. Give us this day our daily bread because they know Jesus has brought them to the Father, that they have his attention, they are welcome in his presence, he cares. Oh, and because they're confident that they are heard, they can accept God's no to their request. You know, they're not people who think that they've only been heard if they can get God to do what they want. Trusting Jesus, they know they come into the presence of the Father, that the Father who has given them this way to come to him has heard them. For believers who know what Jesus has done, that is never in doubt. And they know that they'll always be treated with love because they're cleansed. They're not under judgment. They're his people. And so when God gives another answer from the one they want, like Paul praying about his thorn in the flesh, they can actually rejoice in it for they know it will lead to Jesus' glory. When you know you come with confidence to God as a believer in Jesus, you really can pray, not my will, but yours be done, because you know God is for you. And you've already experienced the goodness of his will in the death of his beloved son for you, to bring you to him. Oh, I'm commanded to draw near with full assurance. Believers don't need to censor the requests of their heart, to, to pretend that they can only talk to God about certain acceptable things. That's completely futile because God knows what's going on in your heart already. No, believers can pray in everything all their concerns, and they know from whom they receive all their good, and so they pray with thanks. And commanded to draw near, believers can start to pray the big prayers, the prayers for Jesus' glory in the preaching of the gospel in the world, prayers that God would raise up workers into his harvest, prayers for the growth of God's people in the knowledge of God's will so that they live fruitful lives which honour him. Oh, prayers that ask for a greater knowledge of God's love for them in Christ, which is the source of all our perseverance and fruitfulness. So ask yourself, does your praying, its manner 
and frequency show that you are convicted of the truth of the work of Jesus, that through him, through his death, you, you can come into the presence of the almighty, holy, just God who hears and acts. Conviction of the greatness and effectiveness of the work of Jesus will show in drawing near to God in a practice of constant, simple, direct, reverent prayer. And that is such a privilege, isn't it? No matter how low you get, no matter how dire your circumstances, no matter how powerful your enemies, no matter how conscious you are of your weakness, you can draw near with full assurance that you come into the very presence of the true and living, the almighty God. Secondly, conviction of the truth of Jesus, God says, will show in holding fast to our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, some of you may have noticed there's been a strong note of hope, of future expectation in Hebrews' teaching of the gospel. In fact, this is a hope believers confess when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, the Lord and High Priest, as Hebrews has been teaching, of Psalm 110. This note of hope actually started in chapter 1, believers' hope, for the day when everything will be put in subjection to Jesus. Oh, chapter 4, we've learned believers hope to share in God's rest, the time of his salvation when all is made new. Actually, chapter 9, we are confident of this because we are confident in Jesus. He will appear a second time to save his people. It's a hope which has been richly described in Hebrews. Oh, the author speaks of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, picking up all the Old Testament expectation of that secure and beautiful place overflowing with life. It's a hope, verse 35 of 11, of a better resurrection rising to a life that will never die. It's a hope, we're told, of receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the eternal kingdom, where God reigns unopposed, where his people dwell in his presence, in safety and security, at peace with him. We are not like our unbelieving neighbours. Believers have a hope, a hope beyond death, a hope beyond the possibilities of this age. We don't think this world is all there is because you'd be really shortchanged and pretty cross if that were true, wouldn't it? Right? Most of us would be just disappointed. Right? And if we're convinced of what Jesus has done, you know, that we are happy to confess. We're happy to confess this hope to all undeserved though such a hope is. We're happy to say God in his kindness will raise us to the new heaven and earth. It's not boasting in our own goodness. It's boasting about Jesus' effectiveness. And he says, those who grasp what Jesus has done hold this hope without wavering, never swerving away, undeviating in our conviction that it will come to be. And we have this undeviating conviction because we know Jesus is guaranteed in his death his people's participation in that time 
their rising to life, when their sins will be remembered no more. And we know that God is faithful. His promise will never fail. He'll never fail to fulfil the oath he's sworn to his son. That's true, isn't it? We believe the gospel. We've experienced God's faithfulness already in the fulfilment of, well, sending Jesus to fulfil his promise to Abraham, in fulfilment of his promise to David, in fulfilment of the word he spoke to Jeremiah in the new covenant, the covenant Jesus has brought into being by his death. Oh, yes, we know God is faithful in raising his son from the dead. But holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering is more than words. It's actually a matter of the choices we make, the direction we give to our lives. What do you think guides your neighbours' lives, the choices they make, the careers they choose, the investments they make, where they choose to live, what and who they invest their time and energy into? Often it would seem that it's the desire to get the most out of this life for themselves because they think this is the only life they'll have. And so they choose their career for satisfaction or lifestyle, their home for its investment potential or schools or social advantage. They save for their retirement and feel robbed if they die before they can spend all their super, right? Believers will make different choices because we have a different, a sure hope. A great retirement is not the best we hope for and that's a relief isn't it because most of us are going to get old and decrepit and you know more things are going to fall off and more joints are going to ache and yeah it's just awful right our hope is like a compass it gives us true north it orients us so that when we have decisions we can keep moving in the right direction and so when we come to career choices we'll ask whether they will bring Jesus' commendation, well done, good and faithful servant at the last day. Well done, because we have used what he's entrusted to us for his glory, because we knew he'd be revealed as the exalted Lord. That was our hope. Oh, when we think about how to use our money, we'll ask how we can use it now to make eternal friends, to store up treasure in heaven where it's secure forever, because we know there is an eternal reward. When we come to think about where we'll choose to live, well, we'll make that choice knowing that we have a permanent home in the heavenly city and we are just passing through here and so we're free to choose to live where Jesus directs us, where we can give ourselves to his will, to his priorities, to loving his people and doing good. So ask yourself, believer in Jesus, do you have a sure and confident hope because you are convicted about the truth of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And do you let that hope be your compass in life, direct the decisions you make. And when people challenge you about your choices, do you cheerfully confess your hope? That you're making different choices because you have a different goal, because Jesus has died for you. Thirdly, those convinced that Jesus is the unique, effective, eternal saviour give themselves together to a life of love and doing good. Let us, he says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now it says, let us consider how to stir up one another, but 
Actually, a more literal translation is, let us consider one another. Let's keep on paying attention to one another. Let's keep on thinking about one another. Yes, the goal of that thinking is to stir each other up to love and good works, but obeying this command starts with thinking about considering one another. Jesus saved us to be a people. He didn't save us to be isolated individuals. And we're sadly such an individualistic society, a society that uh, trains each of us to only think about ourselves and our desires and freedoms, that this thinking about others actually doesn't come naturally. Ask yourself, how much do you think about your brothers and sisters here or, or, or in your church? Do they register in your consciousness? Do you know, say, what their work is? Do you know their trials? Do you know what their health is? Do you know their families, not just their nuclear, but, the, but their big family, how their parents are going? Or do you just rub shoulders briefly and superficially on the way out? Now, if you get to church, that's good. But actually, do your brothers and sisters then just drop out of your consciousness? Now, I'm not expecting everyone here to know everyone else. But everyone who comes regularly here, I know we've got some visitors here today, but everyone who comes regularly, do you know some of those who come? Conviction about the truth of Jesus shows itself in considering one another, thinking about one another. And that alone, doesn't it, means extending yourself to get to know them for Jesus' sake. And this thinking does have that goal. It's about being able to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Now, the scripture repeatedly urges us to love that, to love. You know that. Every New Testament writer repeats the command to love our neighbour, to love one another. On the New Testament, is just as clear that we are to live lives characterised by doing good. It starts, doesn't it, with our Lord's command to let our light shine in this dark world in doing good. Oh, it goes on. We see in the pastorals that speak about the life of God's people. We see Paul's expectation that Christian widows should have a reputation for good works and wealthy Christians should be rich in good works. And in Titus and 1 Peter, it's clear that all believers should be keen to do good, zealous for, devoted to good. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And Peter says that, well, our good works should put to silence our critics and bring praise to God on the last day. Christians mustn't live selfish lives, just preoccupied with pursuing our own interests and pleasures. We are to love and do good and to stir one another up, to persevere in loving and doing good. Now think how distinctive that is. What does the world seek to stir people up to? To want more for themselves, to greed and covetousness, to lust or selfish ambition, to tribal loyalties, to promote political ambition to pursue fleeting experiences. And if you don't believe that, well, you haven't been listening to commercial TV or radio or opening the pages of 
glossy magazines. Okay, now that is probably a very blessed life, but you are out of touch. Okay, uh, right? Love and good deeds should characterise our lives. Think how all-embracing this expectation is and recognise that a commitment to love and good deeds actually integrates your life as a believer. Love and good works, love and good deeds is the all-encompassing expectation of a believer's life. You see, sometimes we divide what we do into categories like spiritual and secular work or gospel work and the rest. And sometimes we start making judgments about our brothers and sisters depending on our evaluation of how much of one or the other that they do. But scripture calls us all to love and good deeds. Now plainly sharing the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the gospel that will actually bring them if they believe it to find eternal life and know the loving God, well plainly that is an act of love. And it is a good work to bring someone to know Christ and it's good to support the work of the gospel. But equally so, sharing the gospel is not the only expression of love, not the only good work. The good Samaritan, remember him, loved his neighbour by interrupting his journey, disrupting his plans, spending his money to meet an acute physical need. John tells us that we're not just to love with words but in deed and truth. James makes pointed remarks about clothing and feeding the poorer brother or sister or visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. There are lots of ways of loving and doing good. Think about it. You can do good at your work, in your relationships with your co-workers, your kindness, your patience. You can do good in your work by working honestly, conscientiously, delivering what's promised. And yes, you can do good by your work, whether it's stopping sewerage from leaking and spreading disease, to teaching a child to read, to helping an elderly person stay connected with their world and live in a clean house, to helping develop a vaccine for malaria. There are lots of ways you can do good in honest work. And yes, where we have choices, it's good to choose work that gives you lots of opportunity to do good because God's people live lives of doing good. Not just in work, you can do good in your family by creating a hospitable house or nurturing your children into responsible adults or by maintaining the stability that enriches individuals and societies. And for some of us, self-sacrificing provision and nurture is actually the main focus of our doing good. Oh yeah, and you can do good in private too, can't you? By faithful prayer. Where you're gifted, it's also give. Good to give yourself to evangelism and the teaching and preaching of God's word. To give yourself to that work. But there are lots of ways of loving and doing good. And your life will be more integrated, more sustainably fruitful if you determine to pursue love and good deeds. And you're confident that what you're giving yourself to falls within this all-encompassing expectation of the Christian life. Scripture calls us to love and good deeds. It doesn't call us to rate them or to judge the good others do, but just to do them and to, as we have opportunity and to encourage each other in doing them. <coughs> but to do that effectively in a way in which your encouragement will be heard, you actually have to know your brother and sister 
For love and good deeds need particular expression. There's always a contextual element to love and doing good. That's why this scripture starts by telling you to consider your brother and sister. Let me give you an example. Where someone is free of obligation and ensnared by worldliness, the good you may be urging them to do might be to listen to the call of God to spread the gospel in another country. Leave home and work to do that. But where someone is the sole child of sick parents, the good you will urge them to do is to obey scripture and care for their parents. Oh, one person, you might be urging to give themselves more wholeheartedly to their work so they have a good reputation with outsiders. Another, you might be urging to be more disciplined in leaving work to spend time in caring for his or her family. Oh, one person you might be urging to be bold and speak up about the gospel to their family. Another, to speak less and live more consistently. We have to consider one another, think about one another, if we are going to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And to get to know someone effectively, we have to meet together. Here the author, we mustn't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Now in the ancient world, really the only way you could know another was to meet. No telephone, no real postal service, no Facebook. But those aids to relationship are even in our day no substitute for meeting because we are embodied people. And you can learn a lot just by seeing someone, seeing them with their kids, seeing their tiredness, seeing their grief, their joy. Some of those in the community that our author is writing to are neglecting that meeting. And it's not an occasional absence, like when some of us are on holiday or visiting family in the country or taking the evangelistic opportunity of going to a preschooler's birthday party. No, no, this was an habitual neglect. We might be able to think of excuses for them. You know, they're persecuted. They're afraid of identifying with a Christian group, although actually... Hermes, a second century Roman writer, tells us that the real issue was people had a preoccupation with their business affairs. But you know, our author doesn't address the reasons for their absence. In fact, our author doesn't even address the excuses you might be giving for being habitually absent. I don't know. Now, why doesn't he bother? Well, because it doesn't matter. For whatever the reason their behaviour had to change because he knows that this habitual neglect is dangerous. It's a sign of complacency and indifference, a sign that they didn't really understand the greatness of what Jesus has done and what it means to be his people and a pathway to apostasy. We need the encouragement of others to persevere in living the distinctive life of Jesus' followers, a life of love and doing good. And... You know, it's coming up to July, so the tour, the frequency of cycling illustrations will increase, okay? But even in cycling, those who work together, the peloton, are stronger than the strongest individual rider, and that is true of the Christian life. This instruction not to neglect meeting together is a command for our good. We must meet together and don't limit that to Sunday. It's good to meet, good to chat afterwards. But there are growth groups. There are the meals uh, Kirsty Watson-Jones is promoting. Oh, there's 
the opportunity to take the initiative to catch up in your homes. We have to be able to know each other well enough to consider how we can stir each other up to love and doing good. Rather than neglecting the meeting, we should be redoubling our efforts at exhorting, encouraging each other because we know, he says, that our Lord's coming is near. Now, the word translated encouraging each other is actually the same word that our author uses to describe his book. Hebrews 13.22, he calls it a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. So encouragement is more than just asking her how someone is going. That's a good start. Encouragement has substance. It's bringing the truth about Jesus to bear on the individual circumstances of our brothers' and sisters' lives so that they're reminded of how great Jesus is, how good Jesus is, how sure Jesus' love for them is, and so encouraged to persevere in trusting him and living for him. And this is every believer's responsibility. It is your responsibility. And all the more as you see that day drawing near, and that day is near. That day is nearer to us than it was to them. It's not a case of, ah, 2,000 years, it hasn't come yet, so it won't come. No, no, it's actually 2,000 years. That day is certain, and every passing day has brought it closer to us. We are much nearer that day. So think, who... Are you stirring up to love and good works? That's what God is actually asking you from his word. Put some names to your obedience. Can't think of names. Then think about how you can change. Who? Oh, and, and how are you stirring them up? What in your conversation encourages them to keep trusting Jesus in the circumstances of life? But it's not just conversation. Do you say, let them know that you're praying for them? Oh, do you offer to pray together with them about some issue in their home or work? Do you stir them up, say, by making it easy for them to serve, by, say, offering to mind the children so they can get out to Bible study or to their ministry? Or, or, or do you offer to come in and help to clean up after a ministry? That is powerfully encouraging. Do you lend them a book you've read that you found encouraging or better as a... Harry Power suggested, do you have a, a, a book club where you know every quarter you might read together that helpful book that will encourage them? Do you make yourself available, say, to help them plan that meal where they ask their non-Christian family or workmates around with a view in the end to sharing the gospel? How? Are you stirring up your brothers and sisters to love and good works? And when are you doing it? Hebrews 3 said we should encourage one another daily. So when are you doing that? Oh, and, and when can you? You know, you might have a long commute to work and have Bluetooth in the car. Great time for ringing that Christian friend who's going through a hard time. Great time for ringing them up. Or, or you might think, oh, I can, I've got an eat. I can have a meal that includes them. Or maybe if you're not in a growth group yet, you can see that you can set aside an evening to go. Who, how, when are you stirring up a brother or sister to love and good deeds? Oh, and if somebody's stirring you up, don't resent them or brush them off. Thank them. Well, a conviction about the truth of Jesus. 
a conviction that because of Jesus' death, we now can come to God and are welcome in his presence. A conviction that Jesus is our living saviour who helps us now and has secured our eternal future. That conviction must show, says God's word, and show in the ways God says. That distinctive life of faith that keeps on coming to God confidently in prayer. That distinctive life of hope a hope you willingly confess and never deviate from and that guides your choices in life, that distinctive life of love and good deeds that we're to keep on encouraging each other in as we live the Christian life together. Is that your life? Because in trusting God, you'll come to know as your God, the living God, who hears your prayers, who keeps his promises and who has loved you and done you eternal good through the death of his son. So meditate on what Jesus has done for you. Grasp what God has so caused to be written in Hebrews 7 to 10 about your Lord Jesus, our great high priest, and his once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses our consciences and brings us forever forgiveness. Meditate on Jesus and what he's done for you, and then ask, when and how often am I praying? Who have I shared my hope with and, and how does it, should it inform my choices? And yes, who, how and when am I stirring up to love and good deeds? Brothers and sisters, you believe in Jesus. Let your conviction show. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would write this word on our hearts, that we wouldn't be people who hear and then leave here and forget. Give us grace to pray, to always draw near to you. Give us grace to know our hope, to be confident in our hope and to be guided by our hope. And Father, give us grace to put in the effort to know one another, and in knowing one another, then be able to stir each other up to that life of love and doing good that honours our Saviour Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.